0: Welcome back to the room. We are in Proverbs chapter 18 this morning. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at Proverbs 18, 1 through 9. And the topic is going to be about uh, what the Bible says about the fool. And so this morning, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Proverbs 18. We'll divide this uh, section of Scripture up into a couple of Sundays. Um, 18 verses 1 through 3. This morning, and then verses four through nine next week. When I was a kid in a small town in Noble, Oklahoma, uh, when I went to kindergarten, um, I was repeatedly told, uh, we, we don't use words like that at school. I would go to friends' houses, and they would say, Their mothers would often say, We don't use that language in our house we don't say that word over here i was uh, like the 20th kid with you know 19 cousins above me three siblings above me or two siblings above me and um, and then a dozen cousins below, and, and we made it our goal to really hurt each other. We would try to combo the worst words we could think of with the worst insults we could think of, and and we would just, you know, that was kind of a game to us, and uh, and so we kind of carried this bad language um, throughout our childhood, and uh, obviously inappropriate, obviously terrible, Um And and that was the one thing that really changed when I first became a Christ follower is my language. The way I spoke changed. Uh, The the words I used, the language I used, uh, the topics of conversation changed. But as I think about that, as bad as my language was, uh, according to Jesus, the worst word you can use to describe someone is fool. In Matthew 5.22... At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. But whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What elevates fool to the top of the bad language heap, right? What makes saying you fool fool such a a terrible thing to say about a person? Why was the term fool in Jesus' teaching such a horrible thing to say? Well, as you might guess, the Bible has a lot to say about the fool. And there is a concentration of that teaching uh, in the book of Proverbs about the fool, about the way of folly, and about foolishness. And it all comes together to give us a composite sketch of the fool. So who is the fool in the Bible? If we just consider the Bible as a whole, we see that first and foremost, the fool is the atheist. Psalm 14.1 and Psalm 53.1 both start identically. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And they are corrupt and they do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So just on on a large level, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I quoted this verse uh, for 15 years as an evangelist when I would travel and speak and share my testimony. This is how I would have described the first 17 years of my life. I just did not believe there was a God at all. Thoroughly atheistic. Once I came to a place where I believed that there might be a God or a creator, I switched terms from atheism to apatheist. There may or may not be a God, I just don't care. Apathy is not caring about something. Atheist. uh, Jonathan Rauch coined that term uh, in the 90s to describe somebody who just doesn't care if there's a God or not. Apatheist. And I switched to that for a brief period of time until my circumstances got to a point when I desperately needed the God of the Bible to save me. And that's when I became a Christian at almost 17 years old. So the atheist says there is no God. Proverbs 1.7 describes the second tier of the fool. And that says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the second tier of the fool might be that person who believes there might be a God, but has no fear of God in their life. They don't fear judgment. They don't fear wrongdoing. They don't fear sin. They don't fear consequences. They have no fear of God in their life, though they may believe in a God. And then a third tier of the, um, the fool is the one who just sort of plays religious games with God, right? Jesus called the Pharisees, you blind fools. He called them blind fools because they would make distinctions about not swearing by the temple, but it's okay to swear by the gold of the temple. And yet they were thoroughly corrupt and wicked in their hearts, but they, would, they, were, they were so religious. And so committed to their religion that they would slice every law in so many ways. And you were righteous outwardly if you followed their works-based mentality. And Jesus called them blind fools. He had the worst, worst condemnation uh, and the worst statements toward the religious fool. The one who is thoroughly religious but is not redeemed. So those three aspects of biblically what a fool is, they, is an atheist, uh, the person who doesn't believe in God, the person who has no fear of God, though they may believe in a God, they, they have no fear of God. And then that third tier would be the religious fool who is not redeemed, is not saved, but is thoroughly religious, whether it be um, Christian religion or uh, Jewish religion or Hindu religion or Mormon religion or any other religion out there, if they're unredeemed, unregenerate, but religious, it would still categorize them in that word. But if we're looking for a composite sketch of biblically beyond those three levels, I'm reading from the International Bible Encyclopedia. When it describes a fool, it's the word Nabal. Frequently translated as fool and Nabala as folly. You remember Abigail's husband, um, in um, I think it's in First Kings um, when David um, is um, he goes and is protecting Nabal's um, flock, and then he asks Nabal to provide food for him, and and Abigail, he, Nabal um, he um, he basically insults David. And so his wife, Abigail, comes and rescues Nabal out of David's hands. He's about to kill him. She says, his name is right. His name means fool. Nabal <clears throat> describes the fool. And we almost have a definition of Nabal in Isaiah 32, 6-8. Um, Keith, could you throw that verse on the screens there? Um, Isaiah 32, verses 6 through 8. In Isaiah 32, 6 through 8, you can also turn there if you'd like to, uh, it almost gives us a definition of the fool. Isaiah 32, 6 says, For the fool speaks folly, and his heart is busy with iniquity, to practice ungodliness, to utter error concerning the Lord to leave the hungry, the craving of the hungry unsatisfied, and to deprive the thirsty of their drink. As for the scoundrel, his devices are evil. He plans wicked schemes to ruin the poor with lying words, even when the plea of the needy is right. But he who is noble plans noble things, and on noble things he stands." That's Isaiah 32, 6-8. And so did you catch that? The fool speaks folly. His heart is busy with sin. He practices ungodliness. This person, he or she, utters complete false doctrine or error regarding their understanding of the Lord. They misrepresent God and Scripture. This person doesn't help those who need help, right? Did you catch that? The hungry and the thirsty. This almost surely describes their spiritual condition. So someone might be hungering and thirsting for righteousness or for God and seeking God, and a fool will knock them off that course by misleading them regarding who God is. So the fool, based on the general biblical understanding, doesn't believe in God at all or has a nominal belief in God but no fear, or is an outright hypocrite saying they believe in God, but really just plays religious games. The Bible also uses other terms to describe the fool as wicked, corrupt, doing abominable deeds, vile, um, hasty, impatient, self-sufficient, despising advice and instruction, ready to speak and act without thinking. Quick to get angry, quick to jump into a quarrel, quick to jump into a fight, unrestrained in their anger, silly, stupid, even stupid with brute force, Uh, we'll get to that later, associated with transgressions, with sin, and with the scoffer. So with that sketch in mind, let's turn back to Proverbs 18 and get a, um, a, a, a sort of a more clear understanding. And as you're turning there, let me just say this. Remember, as we talked about last week, the goal of Proverbs, for those of us who are in Christ, is that we may look more like Jesus. That's the goal of Proverbs. Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.30, He became to us the wisdom of God. Because of Him, you were in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Proverbs. When you look to see Proverbs Lived out in human form, look to the person of Jesus Christ. And for those of us who are in Christ, when we read Proverbs, it helps us to know where we need to be sanctified. What what an area in my life needs to be uh, to look more like Jesus and less like the fool, right? So that's how we're going to approach this. We look at eighteen one through three this morning, and we're going to identify how it is that we are to move from foolishness to more Christ likeness. So let's look at verses 1 through 3. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. Verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Verse 3. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. So whenever we, uh, let's, let's get back into verse one here. Let's understand what this reveals to us about a foolish person. Number one, whoever isolates himself, seeks his own desire, breaks out against all sound judgment. To seek your own desire, this person places themselves at the center and their own desires. We call this self-centeredness, idolatry, that when your own desires take center stage and they are the full so, the, the sole focus, not the full socus, um, when they are the sole focus of every activity and action of your life, how can I be pleased? What is it that most pleases me? What is it about my routine and my food and my, what I watch and what I listen to? It all gravitates around me. I don't know if you can see this in our culture, or see, I think you can see this everywhere, right? We all sort of gravitate around a center, and the person who is a fool or who is a foolish isolates himself so that that person may seek their own desire, which is the absolute opposite of Jesus. According to Philippians 2, 3 through 8, we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to consider What? others as more significant than yourselves. Paul tells us in, first, in Philippians 2.4, "...let each one of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself." See the opposite there? A fool seeks to isolate himself to seek their own desires, but Christ Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus' constant refrain during that night before the cross was not my will, but your will be done. This is the emptying of himself, the willingness to be obedient and to seek what pleases God, not what pleases himself. But the fool, on the other hand, isolates himself or herself so that that person may seek their own desire. And the verse says he breaks out against all sound judgment. Do you have antisocial tendencies? I and mean, this goes beyond personality, right. Some of us are introverted. some of us are extroverted. Um, that's we don't want to um, add that into Scripture. Scripture knows nothing about that. Uh, those are terms and descriptions that are uh, later developed. Uh, but but are new to Scripture. That would be imposing a current idea onto Scripture. Scripture is not saying that there's a distinction between those who are introverted and extroverted, um, but we understand it in that way as people who have antisocial tendencies. But if you're isolating yourself, it means that you're breaking away from people. You're separating yourself from godly accountability and godly fellowship. That's dangerous. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Who's the easiest to pick off? The isolated one. We have a ministry-safe training today, uh, a training that helps us protect children in our church from sexual predators and also to help bring healing to those who have been sexually abused. That's our Caring Well initiative that we've been doing for the last three years. In the ministry-safe training, you're going to find out that those who are sexual predators and prey on children and others, they want to isolate somebody for nefarious purposes. They seek to isolate some. So those in isolation are in a terribly dangerous position. But it doesn't start off that way. You don't think, oh, this is terribly dangerous for me to skip church today or to skip Bible study tonight or to skip accountability group or to skip that. It doesn't sound that dangerous. It could simply start as, I just don't feel like going to church today or I don't feel like going to Bible study today. Or I have other things that I could really use this time to do. And so we isolate ourselves in some simple ways. I bought a house, or I have a new vacation home, or a new boat, or a new cabin, or a new trailer. The Lord wouldn't want me to waste it, right? Surely He would want me to go and take the vacation and take the weekend retreat and and skip out. And this is how it begins. That habit, that simple excuse leads to a habit of isolation, the truth is we need people. You need people and people need you. When you're absent, you deprive the body of your gifts, abilities, insights, the what God is doing in your life. You deprive the body. You say, well, I don't need people. Well, people might need you. They might need your insight, your life experience. Somebody might need to hear a prayer from you. Somebody might need to hear an encouraging word from you. To participate in body life is the opposite of isolating yourself to seek your own desires. Um, Neediness is not a popular positive word in our culture, but neediness describes the created order. God said to Adam, it's not good for him to be alone. I will create a helper suitable for him. Listen, that happened before the fall. You think neediness is a a result of the fall. This was before sin entered the world. Adam needed a companion. You need people and people need you. As Christ followers, we must be in community. And for some of you, that's easier than for others, right? Uh, If you're naturally introverted, uh, maybe it takes more intentionality. Maybe it takes more effort. Maybe it takes more um, discipline. But just because you're an extrovert, say you love being around people, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're experiencing (laughs) biblical community. You could be an extrovert who loves to be around people and when you get around people all you do is gossip or all you do is uh you know split, spread slander or or bring people down by your conversation so just because you're an extrovert and you're here doesn't mean that you're necessarily participating in biblical community if you want to know what biblical community is you look at acts two forty two through 47 and it describes people sharing and praying and uh and reading the word together and encouraging each other through scripture Jesus surrounded himself with people most of the time. And you see in his life and relationships multiple layers. He he was with his family. He was with his larger group of disciples. He was with the 12 apostles. He was with his three um, sort of inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And even then we see that John was the disciple whom Jesus loved He related to people, and as an act of um, health and an act against foolishness, he did not isolate himself. He said, well, even Jesus withdrew to lonely places to pray. Yes, that's true. That's the exception, not the rule. Let's look at verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. One of my commentaries said this, the fool has a closed mind, but an open mouth. A small mind and a big mouth. You ever been around somebody like that? I mean, don't point. I mean, that's rude, but... I was at a party not too long ago, maybe a couple, two or three years ago, and there was a a particular person there that I I did not know this dad, and so I I thought, well, I'll go over there and get to know this person. And and so I asked a few questions here and there, just tell me about yourself, tell me about your background, tell me about your life, And, and I kid you not, about an hour later, I did not, I was not able to wedge a single word in otherwise. Just, he talked nonstop, and he aired one opinion after another opinion after another opinion, and at about minute 33, I thought, I'll never do this again with this guy. I'll never talk to this guy again. And I I can tell you, after three years, I have never talked to that guy again in a social situation. Why? Because the fool takes no pleasure in hearing or understanding, but only in talking and talking and talking. There is no teachability. There is no humility. There is no um, interchange or, or helpful conversation. You've been around people like that. But on the other hand, you've also been around people who you have wonderful dialogue and conversation with. I just looked up and saw Andrew uh, Neckel this week. And we had a, a breakfast on um, Thursday morning, and, and it went from one hour into an hour and a half. And, and at the end of it, I thought, that was oh, I could spend, I could spend a, a breakfast with him every week just to have this encouraging, sharpening. We talked about Scripture. We prayed together. We talked about a situation that we're both facing with some some difficulty. And and it was an engaging, life-giving, life-producing conversation. You've had conversations like that somebody who listens to you and engages and shares helpful viewpoints and as iron sharpens iron you sharpen one another they stimulate you into new ways of thinking and as we prayed together i told my small group listening to you pray how you relate to the father the language you use it blesses me i learn from that and i'm engaged with that but the fool is not like that watch out for those who take no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his or her own opinion. they are unteachable, they already know it all, and they refuse to learn. And that's a foolish person. James 1.19, "Understand this: everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. let's move on to the last verse in our, um, our section here this morning. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. Four really weighty, chunky words there. That don't paint a pretty good picture, right? Don't paint a pretty picture. Wickedness, contempt, dishonor, disgrace. Wickedness would be the sum total of repeated immoral evil behavior over a long period of time. A person who is evil continually gives in to wicked habits and behaviors, thoughts, and ideas, and pursues that. That would be a sum total idea. Last week we talked about proverbs that give you a sum total description of a person's life. Wickedness would be in that category. But he adds to that when a person is repeatedly wicked, contempt, dishonor, and disgrace also accompany them. Um, Derek Kidner calls these sins, three traveling companions. You find them all together. Wickedness brings along three friends, contempt, dishonor, and disgrace. I I hear contempt a lot. But I'll just be honest with you, I didn't really know what it meant uh, until I I looked it up this week. Um, Contempt is the state of being despised in a scriptural sense, bringing shame and disgrace. So contemptible behavior, or someone who is in contempt, is someone that is despised because of their behavior. So when a person is wicked, they affect everybody around them in a way that they are despicable. It brings with it dishonor. Honor is weightiness. We were at a convention last week and I said to one of our people that we're together with, he carries a lot of weight. When he's in the room, he's the smartest guy in the room and everybody listens to him. He's honored. Well, the opposite is true of a dishonored person. It means that their opinion and who they are carries very little weight. It's a person that is perceived as without value. And then disgrace shows shame upon shame and humiliation. And many people look at these three verses, uh, Waltke and Aiken specifically, these two commentators that I'm reading, and they see this as a declining scale in verses one through three, the fool as a declining scale. Remember in Psalm one, they walk in the way of the wicked, they stand in the path of sinners and they sit in the seat of scoffers. There is a, a declining word picture there. Uh, walk, stand, sit, Um, uh, sit in the seat of scoffers, mockers, um, that sort of progression, other commentators see that here, that a fool isolates himself relationally, then he isolates all viewpoints by cutting off listening and understanding, and then is characterized as wicked, contemptible, and disgraceful. You see that progression? Whether it's artificial and imposed on the text or whether it's there doesn't change the fact that it shows us that those three verses together in that order show us, whether it's a progression or not, that that is the the behavior of a foolish person, to isolate, to stop listening, and then their end result might be wickedness, contempt, disgrace, and dishonor. So how should we respond to this in closing? Jesus said in Matthew 7:24 through 29, that the one who is wise applies the word. So it's not enough for you to just to hear this today and say, oh, that's a good, good message, good text, and then go back out and do whatever you want, right? Um, that shows foolishness. Jesus said the wise person doesn't just hear the word and doesn't just understand the word, but goes and puts it into practice. So every time you hear a sermon, you should walk away with a, a bit of a to-do list, what should I do in response to this? What, what does your to-do list look like today? Maybe it looks something like this. I need to pray about this issue. Maybe it looks like I need to meditate on this passage or, or I need to memorize that verse. Or maybe it's I just need to change the way I think and speak and act toward people. Maybe I need to stop cutting myself off or isolating myself. Maybe I need to be more disciplined in corporate worship and uh, small group attendance and, and engaging with other believers. Whatever it is that God is leading you to do, let me close with, um, with these two recommended applications. If you find yourself as described in that top tier of the unbelieving fool, the atheist, the apatheist, or the religious hypocrite, your course of action would be to be saved. Your course of action would be, be saved. You will never not be a fool if your entire life is lived. And as Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? The most foolish thing you could do is be a bazillionaire, and have every life experience and the most enriching relationships here, and then forfeit your eternal soul for currently worldly pleasures and ideas. Be saved. Be saved. That's your first uh, recommended action step if you are here and you don't want to be a fool. Be saved. But for others of us, we are saved and we still recognize, oh man, I'm still pretty foolish, there's still areas in my life that don't look like Jesus that look more like a fool. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6:11, he says, "Such were some of you. You used to be a fool, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus, Christ and by the Spirit of our God." So in order for us to be sanctified, what areas of proverbs that are touching on are sensitive? Maybe it's your language. Maybe it's the way you handle finances. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's in cutting yourself off. Maybe it's um, uh, in the way in which you are promoting secret sin in your own heart. You're practicing sin, seeking your own desire. Whatever it is that God would have you to do, let me encourage you to respond with action today. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you so much for the opportunity that we have gathered to hear it. Thank you for um, our... Um, our worship team that leads us in worship for our elders who lead us in prayer and for your holy spirit who teaches us by your word may you be glorified and honored in our lives today and may we put it into practice what it is that you have said for us to do in jesus name amen